Good afternoon. I think I think we have lined out our technical difficulties, and uh, I pray that it's smooth sailing throughout the rest of this afternoon. I appreciate your patience with me on that. It is so wonderful for us to be back together again. It's so wonderful for us for join, joining again in worship, joining again in study from God's Word, and that's exactly what I, I hope that we will do this afternoon, that we will get out our Bibles and we will, we will look at what we are going to read, we will study it with our own eyes, and, and listen to the lessons that are being taught to us. I hope we have already, uh, at this point, taken all the cares of this world, all the thoughts that might oftentimes just float around in our heads and, and occupy so much of our, our concerns, and we will take those cares and we will set them aside, and we'll devote this time that, that we have already spent in, in praising God, and we will continue so in, in studying. If you would, this, uh, this afternoon, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark the 12th chapter. Mark the 12th chapter, that's where we're going to be looking in just a moment, at a lesson that Jesus taught his disciples, a lesson that is still directly applicable to us. But first, I want to tell you about a conversation that I had. Before we get into this, looking at this, I want to tell you about a conversation I had with a guy last year. I was still working at Lockheed Martin, and he heard that I was preaching, and so he came to me and asked me this question. He said, Kyle, do you believe Satan has infiltrated the church? That was the question he asked me. Do you believe Satan's infiltrated the church? Now, this guy really had a knack for asking me very, very twisted answers. And I say that to mean that it didn't really matter what I said. He had another motive to come at. And so I'm always very cautious to, to answer his questions. But I, I asked him to expound a little bit. I said I was a little bit confused by what he meant. And so... He just cut straight to the chase. And he said, I think the church has been infiltrated by Satan. It's been corrupted by Satan because of money. I said, okay. And he said, once you start asking people for money, then you've slipped right into his controls and you're going to do whatever he wants you to do. Well, he was confused about a lot of things, to, to say the least. There was a lot of things that he was confused about. And this was one of them. I'm afraid, though, he also has some good points as well. Satan certainly can't affect the church. We know this because the church is made up of people. People who Satan can affect. And people who Satan can tempt and can entice with sin. And he is especially talented when it comes to money. He has convinced us that we live for money. And we can't survive without money. And we should do everything we can to get it. And then everything we can to keep it. Now don't get me wrong today. I'm, I'm not about to suggest that if you have a bank account or if you have some form of value, whether it be a savings account or equity in a house or, or a possession such as a vehicle or big screen TVs or whatever it may be, that you've allowed Satan to creep into your life. That's not what I'm saying this afternoon. But he can control our thoughts on how important possessions and monetary value is to us. So this afternoon, I want to spend some time looking at, a topic, at this topic and what Jesus had to say about it. His topic that he wanted to talk about regarding our money. And where I want to notice this from is in Mark 12, Mark 12, starting in verse 41. In Mark 12, starting in verse 41, we read a little bit about what is oftentimes called the widow's might or the widow's two mites. And, and so we'll start right here in verse 41 and see what... what 
the, the story is that we are going to learn from today. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now, just in case you're wondering what a mite is, uh, we're going to get into that just a little bit more in a minute. But uh, the best I could find, this is a picture of a mite. This is about what a mite most likely looked at. And in fact, this has become a huge tourist trap for a lot of people buying these mites. These things sell for $10, $15, sometimes $20. And they're not worth nearly that much. So let's look a little bit at this narrative and let's examine a little bit about each player that we find in it. One of the first things that I want to spend our time examining is that we see people, we see the setting. We see people putting money into the treasury. And Jesus observes this. He observes these people placing money into the treasury. Most scholars agree that this was likely in a part of the temple called the women's court. In this area, there was 13 collection boxes that had been installed for, to receive people's offerings. And it's here that Jesus actually did a lot of his teaching. It is, like, it is very likely that this is where the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus to be judged by, by, by her uh, accusers. This is a place that was right outside of earshot of the Sanhedrin. And so a lot of things went on in this area right here where this, place, where this story is taking place. The next thing that I want to notice is that we see there was a contribution of the rich. Many of the rich gave large amounts of money. And notice Jesus didn't condemn this. And in fact, if we want to flip back over to, to Exodus 35, and even if you remember from our scripture reading just a second ago in Exodus 25, this is similar to some examples we see in the Old Testament. In Exodus 35, and starting in verse 20, <clears throat> We read, Then all the congregations of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. Everyone whose heart was stirred, or everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting, and for its service, and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did, so did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hairs and ram skin dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spice and the oil for the light and the, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring material for the work, for all the work, which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. That sounds real familiar, doesn't it? We just 
just read, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't realize that was going to be our scripture reading for this afternoon, but we just read about this where this was commanded. Now we see them doing this uh, just a few chapters later. If we want to turn over to chapter 36, chapter 36, we'll start in verse 2. Then, then Moses called Bezaliel and Aholiab, and every skillful person whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him, to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work and the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each for the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation which circulated throughout the camp saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. For the material they had, they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. And so what we see that kind of similar to these wealthy people who are bringing in abundance, they brought so much that they finally had to be said, stop bringing so much. We, we have enough. You can, you can stop now. So we see this idea that there was, there was nothing wrong with the large um, givings, the large amounts that the wealth, wealthy were giving. But giving abundantly would, <clears throat> excuse me, but, but there was something else we could learn from the giving of the widow. Something that Jesus had more interest in teaching as opposed to how much the rich gave. So let's look at that next, the contribution of the widow. Now, as I said, we would talk a little bit about the two mites. What is a mite? This is what I was able to come up, and there's a lot of contradicting information, but this is the most common thought by so many people. And, and most translations, the NASB doesn't, but I believe the New King James Version does, says that a mite is equal to a, to a quadron. Two mites are equal to a quadron. And so we know that a mite is, one mite would be half of a quadron. Now a quadron was equal to one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which was about one day's wage. And so we look at that and say, okay, a mite, if it's half a quadron, is half of that, so it's one one-twenty-eighth. Now all those numbers and fractions just remind me of, of school and, and things that gave me headaches. So I had to look at it in a different way. It wasn't very helpful for me to look at it like that. So I took, the, the, I took today's minimum wage, which is $7 and a quarter. And $7 and a quarter by eight hours would give you basically a day's wage. And if you were to divide that by 128, you would have what it might would equal for us today. That number is roughly 45 cents. That is roughly what a mite would, would be today in today's standards. Now, some translations kind of confuse this by calling it, like the, the NASB does, a cent, or some even say a couple pennies. But, but it is most likely that it was more equal to something similar to what we have today in, in maybe a 50-cent piece. So in today's standards, the widow gave nearly a half dollar. Now, I thought this was interesting, a comment that I read by James Kaufman. He's a commentator on much of the Bible. And on this verse, he said, She brought to the treasury a heart that was at one with the eternal, submissive in accepting her state of want, but unwilling to make her poverty an excuse for denying the gift that the Father requires of all. 
I thought that was a very interesting point for him to make. But going beyond what James Kaufman had to say, I wanted to look a little deeper at what Jesus had to say. So let's look at his observations. The first was that the widow had given more than all to the treasury. Most scholars agree that this is probably meant to say that she gave more than all combined. All that had given to the treasury combined didn't equal what the widow had, gave, had given in these two mites, in this 45 cents, if you will, that she had given. They had all given out of their abundance, but she had given out of her entirety. Jesus was so impressed with this that he calls his disciples to him to teach them this valuable lesson. And notice the importance of his statements by the preface, truly I say, or assuredly I say to you. This was often Jesus' way of saying, take note of what I am about to say. It's very important. So let's note some of his observations that he made. <clears throat> The first one I want to look at is, this was a lesson for his disciples. Jesus calls his disciples to him. This indicates that the teaching he was about to give was intended for them, and therefore was intended for all future disciples after them. That is to say that what he is about to tell these people is directly applicable to our giving today. The next thing that he gets into, and what really is, is an important part of his teaching is he begins to show them the value of a gift. The value of a gift. It becomes clear here that Jesus doesn't measure the value of a gift by what is given. He doesn't measure it by that, but by what is sacrificed. We can see this even earlier in the Old Testament. If you want to turn over to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, and in verse 24... We read of David wanting to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and he is offered to be given free of charge um, this land and, the, and the, off, the altar. But what he says in verse 24, However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to, my, to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the, off, and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. This teaching, this is teaching would have been greatly encouraging to the poor of this day. How encouraging would this be to know that even though you were poor, and even though there were those who had few material possessions, that if they had a great desire, they could give back to God and could be found abundantly pleasing, even more pleasing than those that gave these large sums. So what we see here is certainly Jesus understood the true value of a gift. But not just the value of a gift, Jesus also understood the value of a person. This is just another reminder that God doesn't judge by outward appearances, but by the motives of the heart. And that is to say again that it doesn't matter what a, per what a person has in God's eyes, but rather what matters is their devotion to give even at a great personal cost. And this helps us understand more what was talked about in James chapter 2, that even the poor can be made rich in faith through Jesus. <clears throat> James chapter 2, and reading in verse 5. James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? can help us to understand this a little bit more when we understand that God is not looking for the abundantly rich 
to serve him. He's not looking for the abundantly rich to give to him. He's looking for anyone, the poor and the rich, to give in a manner that shows devotion to him. There's another important thing for us to take from this. And it's not just that he understands that there's a value of a gift. It's more than understanding there's a value of a person. We also need to recognize that Jesus approves of voluntary poverty. Notice today, that's kind of a bad thing. It is generally viewed as a bad thing to be reliant on the welfare system. Sometimes we look at that and we go, well, that person is just not doing their part. Or sometimes we, we wonder how many people today might criticize this widow for what she did. Maybe they would say, you could have stored, held on to that and stored it for your future. Or they could have said, you're not being very wise or thoughtful about your expenses. They might have even complained and said, you're going to become a burden to the church. Which is expressly told to take care of true widows. But by her voluntary poverty, she follows in a line of many other examples that are taught and that show that that is a viable option for some. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 58, Luke chapter 9 and verse 58, Jesus tells the rich young ruler similarly the same thing. Luke chapter 9. In verse 58, and Jesus said to him, the fox, or excuse me, not the rich young ruler here, but Jesus is talking about himself, said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus never, never chose to own his own property, to own his own house, but rather to commit himself to the work that had been laid before him by God to do. In Luke 18, in verse 22, we see him encouraging the rich young ruler to do the same thing. In Luke 18 and in verse 22, we read, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. In fact, he taught this in his most basic teachings to his, uh, to his disciples. If we flip back over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon of the Mount, verse 31 through 33, a passage that we probably have well memorized. These passages say, Do not worry then saying, What will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We understand that for some, Jesus makes it a viable option and finds approval in choosing to be impoverished for the work of the Lord. Another thing that we might notice is that Jesus was watching how people give. Jesus was setting in a place where he was close enough to see what people gave. And the fact is, we can still understand that Jesus is still watching how people give. We consider how, how the giving of Ananias and Sapphira didn't go unnoticed. Now, I don't want to suggest that if they had been honest, they still would have been killed. But this passage does show us something. It shows us that what they had given and what they had not given was seen by God. Or in 2 Corinthians, if you'll flip over to there real quick, 2 Corinthians 
chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8, we see how the giving and the liberality of some were directly noticed. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberty. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And thus, not, so as, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Then we could turn over to chapter 9 and read again in verses 6 through 7. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do we think, if God loves a cheerful giver, do we think that he somehow doesn't go on noticing what it is that we give, or even how it is that we give? Might God somehow be curious if we are being cheerful so that he can love the sacrifice we make? No, we understand that it's not a curiosity that leads God to learning. It's that God does know. He knows our hearts. He knows what we hold back and what we sacrifice when we give to him. In fact, Hebrews 4 and verse 13 says that all we do or all we don't do for that matter is seen by God. If you want to turn over Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So in all of this, in all of the widows and, and what we learn from the widow's mind, we see that the liberality of the poor is oftentimes far superior to that of the, of the rich. We see that people should be measured not by their wealth, but by their faith. We see that poverty is a viable option for some in the, in the service of the Lord. And we see that nothing, not even our giving or our refusal to do so, escapes the careful eye of our Lord. God is given, is, it, giving is something that we've been commanded to do by God. We can't deny that. And we must decide whether we will choose to follow him or we will, whether we will choose not to follow him. But we also must be very careful not to judge harshly what others give. For if we compare ourselves to the widow and to her two mites, do we truly give to the same extent? We also do well to remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Do we view ourselves with righteousness and others with contempt and giving? Remember who went away from the temple that day justified. And remember Matthew 18, verse 15. If you notice your brother in sin, no matter what the sin is, Go to them. Don't be fearful of your brother, but rather with gentleness, with love, and with patience, encourage them to do what's right. And finally, the story of the widow's might should cause us, cause us to prayerfully and with great care reflect on our own giving. We may feel that we give with excellency. Do we really? She exemplifies sacrificial giving, something that Jesus was going to take a step farther in the very near future when he gave all for the service of us. Is it that much to ask that we give back 
We do well to remember first, or 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Have you been giving as you would, as, you, as would be pleasing to the Lord? Have you been giving at all? I hope and pray that, that after this afternoon we will prayerfully consider the example and the lesson seen in the widow's two mites. Now I hope that we would remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us, a full self-sacrifice. He gave all so that you could live. Are you choosing to live and to take, and to take his sacrifice? Or are you choosing to live in death and take his sacrifice for granted? That's exactly what you're doing if you've not yet become a child of God. You are forsaking his death. But if you have, and maybe you've continued in sin, or allowed things of this world to somehow separate you from God, I encourage you to sacrifice your will, sacrifice your desires to him, and he can fill the hole, the hole in your life that wants, the hole in your life that cares, and that concerns, and even that finances will never fill will never satisfy. But Jesus can fill all of that in your life. If there is some way that we can help you this afternoon, I would encourage you, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.